Well, during my junior year of high school, on football game days, a group of us would don our kilts and wear them to school along with our football jerseys. And you might be wondering, what would inspire a group of teenage boys to engage in such strange behavior? Well, we were inspired. We were inspired by a brave man who lived long ago. In 1297, a Scottish knight rode his horse in front of a terrified ragtag group of his soldiers as they prepared for battle. And he shouted to them, I see a whole army of my countrymen here in defiance of tyranny. You have come to fight as free men, and free men you are. What would you do without that freedom? Will you fight? And one of them spoke up and said, Fight against that, pointing to the army that outnumbered them tremendously. No, we will run and we will live. I fight and you may die. Run and you'll live at least a while. And dying in your beds many years from now, would you be willing to trade all the days from this day to that one for one chance Just one chance to come back here and tell our enemies that they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom. That's how Hollywood depicted it, at least. And as William Wallace lies there on the torture rack, and the executor tells him to cry out for mercy and to recant at the end of the movie, and the crowd is chanting, mercy, mercy, Wallace gathers the last bit of strength that he has and screams, Freedom! Today, there is a plaque on the wall at St. Bartholomew's Hospital near the site of Wallace's execution. True story, real person, he really was executed. And this plaque reads in, in Latin, and this is the English translation, I tell you the truth. Freedom is what is best. Sons, Never live life like slaves. Well, what is freedom, really? And to what or to whom are we looking for freedom? The honest answer to this question shows a lot about where our allegiances lie. Some things we might look to for freedom. Our education. Our career path our social status, our circle of friends, our significant other, our sports team, our political party, military protection. These things may also point to what we might be seeking freedom from, which may be just as revealing. We just read from Exodus chapter 3, the people of Israel, they're slaves in Egypt, They cried out to the Lord and they sought relief from suffering. They sought deliverance from their taskmasters. And this was a matter of life and death for the people of God. Now fast forward about 1,500 years and here is Jesus engaged in this debate in John chapter 8 with the Jews about who he is, about who his father is, about who their father is, and about what it really means to be free. 
We're wrapping up this series on the I Am statements of Jesus here today. And one of the primary questions that we've been looking at is, who does Jesus say that he is? I saved this one for the end because I believe this is the most significant statement that Jesus makes about himself here in John chapter 8. This claim is, I think, the pinnacle of the I am statements. Kind of quick recap of where we've been if you haven't been with us or if you've kind of been in and out a little bit. We've looked at seven I am statements of Jesus. And I want you to notice two things as we, as we just quickly go through these I am statements. The first is where the conflict or confrontation is happening, kind of who it's with, and then how all of these I am statements relate to the realities of life and death. The first four I am statements, the first four confrontations that Jesus has is between him and the Jews or the religious leaders. John chapter 6, I am the bread of life. His message was, eat me and live. If you don't eat the true bread from heaven, which is Jesus, then you will spiritually starve. You need that bread to live. John chapter 8, just before the passage we're looking at here. I am the light of the world. If you walk in the light of life, you will have, if you walk in the light, you will have life. If you walk in darkness, you will die in your sin. And then John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd and the door of the sheep. Those are together. Jesus said that I protect you. I protect my sheep. I lay down my life for you so that you will not be killed by the wolves. So those, those four are, are dealing with confrontation with uh, religious leaders and the Jews. Next, Jesus confronts death itself, and he confronts the unbelief of his friends Mary and Martha in John chapter 11. I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus said, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then the last two I am statements both took place in the upper room with the disciples, where we saw the last two weeks Jesus confronting the unbelief of his disciples. Uh, John chapter 14, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Those who don't come to the Father through Jesus will die in their sins. Plain and simple, what he says. Last week, uh, I am the true vine. If you abide in the vine, you will live. You will have life. If you stay connected to Jesus, you will have life. But if you don't abide in the vine, cut off and thrown into the fire. The imagery is, is very clear there. And today, we're jumping back into the heart of the conflict. John chapter 8 is a very intense chapter. Uh, this is, this is a, a challenging chapter uh, to, to read and, and get through in a lot of ways uh, for, for good reasons. But it's a very intense chapter. In verses 12 through 30, we saw Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. And there were three questions that Jesus was asked by the chief priests and the Pharisees. The first one is, where is your father? Jesus had been talking to them about his father, and they asked him, where is your father? And then Jesus tells them, where I'm going, you cannot come. And so they say, they gather together and they say, is he going to kill himself? We We don't know what he's talking about. Where is he going? And then the last question, which is really the main question, which is kind of the the heart of this whole chapter, I think, is they say to him, who are you? Right? He's making all these claims, and they they finally just say it straight up. Who are you? And Jesus is going to answer that. So we're going to pick up just after that section, and we're going to read verses 31 through 59. 
So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you'd, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works, of, you are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I'm here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and keep his, I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Jesus begins here by making this bold claim in verses 31 and 32 about what it really means to be his disciple. 
If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We're going to look today at three aspects of true discipleship, and then Jesus' ultimate claim about his true identity. If you're taking notes, those things are there in your outline. The first thing is that true disciples abide in Jesus' word, know the truth, and have been set free. Abiding in Jesus' word, as Chris talked about last week in John chapter 15, Jesus said, I am the true vine. He said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. We are to prove that we are Jesus' disciples by abiding in him, remaining in him, staying connected to him, and bearing fruit in our lives. That's the first thing he says. He says if we do that, then we will know the truth. We've seen this statement, right? John chapter 14, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And he goes on in his conversation with Philip to say, Philip, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So we abide in his word. We know the truth. This is discipleship 101. These are the foundational truths that Jesus reminded his disciples of just before he went to the cross in the upper room there. These are truths that they would need to know as they went out into the world to make disciples. And these are truths that we still need 2,000 years later as disciples and followers of Jesus, as those who are called to make disciples. But the third part of Jesus' statement here to the Jews in verse 32 does not sit well with them. He says, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now wait a minute, they say. We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Now they're right. They are offspring of Abraham. But they're forgetting some very important details about what God said about Abraham's offspring. In Genesis chapter 15, God makes a covenant with Abraham He takes Abraham outside. He says, look up at the heavens. Look toward heaven. Number the stars if you are able to number them. So shall your offspring be. And it says that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Then God has him cut the animals in half, put them in two rows. He puts Abraham to sleep and then God makes this promise before Signing the covenant by going through it in the smoking pot and the fire. He says, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. This is a huge part of their identity and they're saying we've never been slaves to anyone. And that was the promise here that was fulfilled as God appeared to Moses in the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3 and promised deliverance. Deliverance from slavery in Egypt, the redemptive story of the Old Testament people of God that they celebrated every year as they ate the Passover meal together. It was a reminder that they were once slaves and now they had been set free. So surely they hadn't forgotten this. This was such a core part of who they were. But it wasn't just slavery in Egypt, right? What about the northern tribes of Israel being 
carried off and scattered to Assyria, or the southern tribe of Judah being taken captive by Babylon? Or what about their current situation where they're captive by the Romans, right? Jesus has to be like, are you guys kidding me? Just look around. What are you talking about that you've never been slaves to anyone? But that's not how Jesus approaches it. That's not what he says. We read it and we shake our heads and we're like, what's wrong with you guys? As if we don't see the reality of our own captivity. Instead, Jesus points to the greatest problem. In verse 34, he says, truly, truly, which we've said, pay attention, right? When that's, it's the, in Greek, it's amen, amen, okay? It's the truth doubled. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Jesus is saying your biggest problem isn't the fact that you were slaves in Egypt or that now you're being occupied by the Romans. Your biggest problem is that you're slaves to sin. And then he gives them the promise in verse 36, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And he's talking about himself. He's saying, I am the only one who can offer you true freedom. Stop looking back to Abraham. Stop looking to your earthly heritage. None of that matters. Your hope is not found in where you came from. And also, true freedom is not something that we can work for. Not something that we can fight for. Right? As, as inspiring as William Wallace's story is, that's not true freedom. This week, I finished reading a book I've been kind of going slowly through for a while. It's called How the Nations Rage, Rethinking Faith and Politics in a Divided Age. And it was written, I think, and it came out in late 2016 or 2017. The author is Jonathan Lehman. He's a pastor in Washington, D.C. I think this book is very timely in many ways. Uh, if you've been following the news or you know this, the significance of this date, November 3rd, uh, one year from today is going to be the presidential elections. So um, I wanted to quote from this book uh, to talk about like the, uh, the ideals of American ideals of liberty and freedom. But I was kind of like, oh, I don't want to just, you know, get all political and be like anti-American. So I was kind of second guessing it. But then I read uh, J.C. Ryle's commentary on John. And this is a, a British guy speaking uh, in the 1800s. And I thought he captured this, uh, this idea quite nicely so that I don't have to make this an American issue. He says, liberty, most Englishmen know, is rightly esteemed one of the highest temporal blessings. Freedom from foreign dominion, a free constitution, free trade, a free press, civil and religious liberty. What a world of meaning lies beneath these phrases. How many would sacrifice life and fortune to maintain the things which they represent? Yet, after all our boasting, there are many so-called free men who are nothing better than slaves. There are many who are totally ignorant of the highest, purest form of liberty. The noblest liberty is that which is the property of the true Christian. Those only are perfectly free people whom the Son of God makes free. All else will sooner or later be found slaves. And he's obviously talking here about slaves to sin, as Jesus is saying. And then in the next paragraph, he, he goes on and talks about 
where is, is liberty found for the, for the Christian? He says that we're freed from guilt and the consequences of sin by the blood of Jesus. We're renewed, converted, sanctified. We mortify and tread down sin. We are no longer led captive by sin. Death cannot stop us. The grave cannot hold our bodies for more than a little season. Those whom Christ makes free are free to all eternity. And then listen to this last paragraph as he wraps it up. Let us never rest till we have some personal experience of this freedom ourselves. Without it, all other freedom is a worthless privilege. Free speech, free laws, political freedom, commercial freedom, national freedom, all these cannot smooth down a dying pillow or or disarm death of its sting or fill our consciences with peace. Nothing can do that but the freedom which Christ alone bestows. He gives it freely to all who seek it humbly. Then let us never rest till it is our own. If you are here today and you are in Christ, if you trust in Christ, if you believe in Christ and abide in Christ, you are free. You are free from sin and death. The Son has set you free and you are free indeed. Don't look to other things for your freedom. Look to Christ alone. And if you're here today and you are not yet a Christian, friend, please hear what Jesus has to say to you. It's not my words. You don't have to answer to me. You have to answer to God. You have to answer the who is Jesus question. Jesus says you're either a slave to sin and you're going to die in your sin or you're set free by faith in him. Please do not leave here today without getting that straight. Do not rest until that becomes true in your life. Well, back to our text here. Jesus does not take his foot off the gas as he presses in to the confrontation with the Jews. Verses 37 and 38. He says, I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. He starts here now to question them about who their true father is. Leading us into our next section. True disciples love Jesus, hear his word, and believe him. So here the Jews fire back at Jesus again, saying, Abraham is our father. But Jesus tells them that if they were really Abraham's children, they'd be doing the works that Abraham did. Namely, trusting God's word and obeying him. Not seeking to kill Jesus, the one who told them the truth about God. Jesus again says that they're doing the works of their father and he still hasn't named their father. And they go a step further and they try to claim that God is their father. But Jesus isn't hearing it. He tells them what true disciples, what what true children of God are like. True disciples love Jesus. True disciples hear his word and believe in him. They, on the other hand, 
are children of the devil and are doing his will. Now, if you've got a view of Jesus as just this nice guy who taught some nice things and just came to make the world a better place, then you might as well throw your Bible in the trash because you don't need it. You're not going to get that message from the scriptures. That's not who Jesus is. That's not who he claimed to be. He didn't just come into the world to tell us a bunch of nice things that we want to hear. He came to tell us the truth about God, to tell us the truth about who God is, about who he is. And as we see here, this truth hurts, right? This truth is offensive. Being called a child of Satan? I mean, come on, that's not very nice. This is not what our rebellious hearts want to hear. And listen, this idea, this message we hear of the universal fatherhood of God, that we're all God's children, this is a big load of crap that the world tries to sell us. Excuse my language. But it is not true. We're not just all born good. God just doesn't, doesn't just love everybody and he's just sitting up in heaven with his fingers crossed hoping that we'll just choose to love him back. We're born in sin. Rebels. Dead in sin. Children of wrath. Following our father, the devil. And we are in a boatload of trouble because of it. But God... But God, Paul says in Ephesians 2, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, dead in sin, children of wrath, children of the devil, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. This is not because of your pursuit of liberty or freedom and you're fighting for it. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, not as a result of heritage, not as a result of anything you have done. It is a gift of God so that no one may boast. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But these Jews, they don't want to hear this message. And our world today doesn't want to hear this message First of all, people don't want to admit that they're sinners. Second, they don't want to admit that they come with empty hands, with nothing to bring, nothing to contribute. And third, they don't want to bow down to Jesus and give their lives to him. Our world is okay with the social justice Jesus, or the liberation Jesus, or the peace and happiness Jesus. But when we try to present the John 8 Jesus, that's when the world goes into attack mode. And that's what the Jews did here. All they could do was get mad and start name-calling. Verse 48. Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? This is a super low blow. But Jesus doesn't give in to their game. He calmly answers them and tells them what true disciples of his look like. Which is our third 
point there. True disciples keep Jesus' word and will live forever. He starts by saying that, in fact, he doesn't have a demon, but he is honoring his father while they dishonor him. And his father, the judge, seeks his glory, seeks Jesus' glory. So here he's starting to drop some clues that are going to lead to this big claim that he's about to make at the end of this chapter. Then we have another truly, truly statement here in verse 51 about what Jesus' disciples Look like, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. This word keeps here is really a, a very all-encompassing all word. Uh, Matthew twenty-eight twenty, where Jesus gives the disciples the Great Commission, tells them to go out into all the world, make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe, that's the same word that's used here for keep, to observe all that I have commanded you. So keeping Jesus' word means observing all that he has commanded. He says those who do that, if we keep his word, we will never see death. Now this is the flip side of verse 24 that said, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. That's a guarantee that if you don't believe in him, you will die in your sins. Now he says on the flip side, if you keep my word, you will never see death. Okay? So he hits him with the bad news first, and then he hits him with the good news. There's a way to escape death, right? There's a way to live forever. This is a massive claim by Jesus, and they don't like it. They question him. Abraham died. The prophets died. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than Abraham and the prophets? And this here is really the climax of, of the conflict. Verse 53 there. The question they put to him. Who do you make yourself out to be? Or in a more colloquial way, the NIV says, who do you think you are? They asked him earlier in the chapter, who are you? And we know of an encounter between Jesus and his disciples in Matthew chapter 16, where he asks them, who do people say that I am? And then to his disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter's response, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Peter, the rock, right, the head honcho did not have the ability to know this on his own. It must have been the revelation of Jesus' Father in heaven, the Father who Jesus has been speaking about here with the Jews. Jesus is going to answer their question, who do you think you are, by pointing them again to his Father and his relationship with his Father. Last point there, who is Jesus? He is the son who is glorified by his father, starting in verse 54. And he knows his father. He tells them that they don't know the father and that they are liars when they claim that they do. But Jesus says, I am not a liar because I keep my father's word. And this is so important for us. Jesus didn't just teach a bunch of good things for us to follow. 
He didn't just come to be a good moral example of what it looks like to live a clean life. No, Jesus kept his father's word perfectly. He obeyed the father perfectly on our behalf. We call this the active obedience of Christ. He fulfilled all of the law's demands for us. So when we say that we get Jesus' righteousness credited to our account, it is the perfect obedience of Jesus, this active obedience that counts for us. And we also talk about his passive obedience, which is obviously just as important. His passive obedience is his death on the cross, dying in our place as our substitute for sin, that he might pay the penalty for our sin and die in our place. But he we got to get this right. He didn't just die for us, right? He also lived for us. He lived the perfect life that we couldn't live so that we might be counted perfect and righteous in God's sight. And that is what counted for the Old Testament saints as well, right? We saw Abraham believed God in Genesis 15 and it was counted to him as righteousness. They looked forward in faith to the long-awaited deliverer and Messiah, Old Testament saints like Abraham, who Jesus tells the Jews in verse 56, rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. To which they reply, you are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? And then Jesus drops the bomb on them here in verse 58. Again, another truly, truly. Truly, truly, I say to you, Before Abraham was, I am. What is Jesus really saying here? When he says, before Abraham was, I am. I said earlier, I think this is the greatest claim that Jesus makes about himself. But we need to look carefully at this claim, and we need to look specifically at two words in this sentence to understand his claim. They're the words, was and am. Now, if you uh, were an English major or if you, like, studied language, you probably would, might, be, might know this. And, but we all kind of remember this as a kid, right? In English, these are called referential verbs. Am, is, are, was, were, be, being, been, okay? These are referential verbs. So we have here was and, and am, okay? But was here is actually not a referential verb. It's not like am, is, are, was, were. Was here is not that simple was. It's actually, it's a different word in the Greek. It's the word ginomai, which is the word to, meaning to be born or to come into existence. Uh, some translations helpfully add the word born after was. Uh, the NASB, for example, it's a little bit more of an accurate translation. It brings out the meaning. So before Abraham was born, I am. Uh, it's not just talking about Abraham was, just was, was. Uh, It's talking about before Abraham was born. Uh, One Bible dictionary translates this verse, before Abraham came into existence, I existed. That kind of captures the idea of it as well. John's whole gospel started off with a similar claim about Jesus, about the pre-existence of Jesus, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Then it says in verse 3, all things were made, that's this word ginomai that's used here for before Abraham was, before Abraham was born. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made which was made. Or again, the NASB 
kind of captures the, the fuller meaning with some extra words. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. It's a little bit more of a mouthful than just saying made. But this idea here is that, that nothing existed apart from Jesus bringing it into existence. Okay? So Jesus was there in the beginning when all things came into being. He was there before and when Abraham came into being as a person, okay? But now we need to look at the second verb in Jesus' claim. Was there is, is ginomai, but am here can't be the translation of ginomai. It can't be before Abraham was born, I was born. This am is just the simple am. Am is, our was, were. It's the simple, ref, what's the word? I can't even remember. Referential. I thought it was reflexive. I said that this morning. It's the simple referential verb, am. So, Jesus did not come into being, right? He was born in human flesh, but that cannot account for his claim here. Am here is the Greek word, ami. And it's the same two words here that are used in all of the other I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. It's ego a me. I am. And you might be thinking, well, so what? Well, the so what is answered in the next verse. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Why? Why would they pick up stones here to kill Jesus? It's not just that they're angry about his claim that they are children of Satan. And it's not even just that he said that he was around before Abraham was, because that could just be crazy person talk, right? Like, oh yeah, I was, I was around before Abraham. No, Jesus' claim here is a direct claim to be God. Remember Exodus 3, which we read earlier? When Moses asked the Lord, what he should say when he comes to the people and says, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said, I am who I am. That's where we get the name Yahweh from, that phrase, I am who I am. And do you know how the first part of that, the first I am, gets translated into the Greek, the Greek translation of the Old Testament? which comes later, they translate the Old Testament into Greek. Ego, a me. Okay? I am. So here when Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am, he's using the divine name. He's using God's claim in Exodus 3, I am who I am. That's why they pick up stones to kill him, because he's claiming to be God. Okay? If a couple, of, a pair of people come knocking on your door some, someday and want to talk to you about the Bible and want to talk to you about Jesus and how he never claimed to be God, take them here, okay? This is the clearest claim that Jesus makes to be God. There's other ones, but this is no doubt about it. They would not have picked up stones to kill him if they were just a little peeved at, you know, calling them children of the devil, Jesus claimed to be God, and they wanted to kill him for blasphemy. 
But again, so what, right? How does this change our lives? What does this have to do with our day-to-day? The things that Jesus says are true of true disciples are only true because of who Jesus is. If Jesus is not the eternal Son of God, if he is not I am, then all of our hopes are dashed. We might as well pack it up. We might as well lock the doors. We might as well shut the church down and just go home. Because there's plenty of other false messiahs out there. There's plenty of other things vying for our allegiances. Other people who are going to require a whole lot less of us in terms of suffering and laying down our lives. But we're not just left hoping against hope that it's true. We have the testimony of the entire lineup of Old Testament saints who looked forward in hope. Go read Hebrews chapter 11. We have the witness of the disciples who saw the risen Christ and went into all the world and turned the world upside down as they preached the gospel. The church stands or falls on this. If Jesus is a liar, then we've all been duped by the biggest hoax in human history. But if he is who he says he is, then we push all of our chips into the middle, right? And we wager it all. That's what Abraham did. When it looked like all hope was lost of having his own descendants, he believed God's promises. Even though it seemed like a big joke, he believed God's promises. And Jesus said that Abraham rejoiced that he would see his day, and he saw it and was glad. It was this forward-looking faith that Abraham had. That faith has now been turned to sight for Abraham, and it will be for us one day too when we see our Lord face to face. But in the meantime, we wait, and we trust, and we hope, and we look forward with great expectation to the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's that supper that is foreshadowed when we come to the table. Yes, we look back, as we have have done many times, to Jesus sitting around the table in the upper room with his disciples. But we also have to keep our gaze looking forward. The marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19, starting in verse 6. John hears a voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of many Mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult. Those words sound familiar? It's the exact two same words that say, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and he was glad. The words rejoice and glad are the words that are used here in Revelation 19 at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Calling all of God's people, let us rejoice and exult. And give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. We are that bride, brothers and sisters. We are being made ready as we look forward in faith to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. As we prepare to come to the table, let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. 
Let us look to Christ, the one who meets us, the one who feeds us, the one who nourishes by his, nourishes us by his word and his spirit. May we be fed by him. May we grow up in him. May we look forward in faith to the marriage supper of the Lamb. This table is for anyone who has trusted in Christ. We ask that you would be a Christian, that you would be someone who's in good standing in a gospel-preaching church. The table is open to you.